It's your Kali. What's up? Hey, y'all. What's up? You're about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, live music, booty bump and beats, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow. This show will start five, four, three, two, one. Pop Up Youth Radio is a project of Yolokali Arts Reach and is a youth-led, community-centered, pop-up internet radio program. This Pop Up Youth Radio was recorded on September 28, 2019 in the Black Museum of Art at Northwestern University in honor of the opening exhibition of Pop America 1965-1975. Hello everybody, what's poppin'? You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio and we are Yolokali's Pop-Up Youth Radio broadcasting live at the Pop America Exhibition opened from the Block Museum of Art here at Northwestern University Evanston Campus. My name is Emmanuel. I'm Marie Mraz. And I am Nine. And in today's show, we will be talking about the opening of Pop America's exhibition, the Block Museum as a whole, and the many amazing activities that are being held right now at this museum. So, guys, we took a little peek into the exhibition. What do y'all think? I think it's really beautiful the way it was set up, to be honest. I think it's amazing how a lot of the stuff that's being displayed still is like important today and we see a lot of it still happening with like consumerism and like and the politics and stuff like that and also interesting how everyone had like a different approach on similar topics but everyone had their own way and also considering that they're also from different places in in the world right from um, Cuba, Argentina, Mexico, you know Britain and yeah what did you guys think? I think it was really beautiful about how different artists used different mediums to portray what they were trying to say. And even though some of them did like same things, like like what we saw with uh, Lucia and Columbia Coca-Cola, they also used screen print. And I'm like, the way that we use screen print now and the way we're going to use screen print later in life is actually really um, telling of like how we are as a whole, as a human beings, really. So it was really nice seeing that. For sure. And also a lot of the same mediums are very like active today. and. You know, we were talking about the screen printing process with a lot of different colors, and we want to intake that with one of our guests later on. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. I feel like being that the exhibition is here on the campus, I feel like I'm getting my education on. I'm <laughs> learning so much here. So. Yeah, there's very helpful descriptions as well on every piece. And also, they're divided by sections, so there's like um, almost like themes in a way. And I think that's very neatly because I saw a lot of the same artist so being displayed in different themes if that explains it well <laughs> yeah well anyways let's go ahead and start with our first interview and here we have our special guest can you please introduce yourself sure i'm corinne granoff i'm academic curator here at the block museum and i had the privilege of working on the exhibition for this venue awesome oh so can you tell us a little bit about how it was like to start um with this 
particular exhibition since it's um, a borrowed exhibition? Exactly, yeah. The exhibition was organized by the National Museum of Art at uh, Duke University. So it's an institution that we've worked with previously and a like-minded institution in that they're interested in art that opens up questions to ideas and history and experience. So this seemed like a great project. This look at Latin American pop art or pop art that um, from across the Americas because there were so many ways for us as a university museum to connect with different departments here at Northwestern. So there's a lot of um, delicate um, pieces. I mean, every piece is delicate. It's very meaningful. So what was the process like to unbox some of those artworks and um, handling and you know transporting from one area to another? What was that like? Well, a few of us, um, me and two colleagues, had were able to go to the Nasher last spring and see the exhibition installed there. And it does look different here. It, at the Nasher it was one floor. Here we've had to spread it across two floors. I think you're right. There are so many fragile and delicate pieces like the Oidesika banner, Be an Outlaw, Be a Hero, which is displayed in a special case because it, it is very fragile. It's a screen print on fabric and it was used as a flag in demonstrations and this um, flag exhibition that was kind of a protest and art event at the same time. The most memorable piece to uncrate was the Marisol, me, my mother and I. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to ask about that one. It caught my eye with Marie as well. Yes. And we were talking about, well, like, you know, thinking back on the unboxing idea, like, what was the packaging like for that specific piece? Right. Well, you probably noticed there are a lot of really large pieces in the exhibition, yes. monumental paintings. That, of course, is the largest and the heaviest. Mm -hmm. And I think it came in three huge crates because it's three different pieces. Umbrella on top, the mother and daughter figure, and then the bench. And it was a whole... I was most of one day for installing just that one, or installing just that one piece. Can you talk to us a little bit about the idea behind that piece? Oh, yes. So Marisol is probably one of the better known artists in the exhibition. She was, you know, she's identified as Venezuelan in this context, but she also worked in Paris and New York. She's very, she's well known for this kind of sculpture that is figurative, or it starts out in a figurative tradition, but then kind of abstracts the figure in space. And this is a reflection on her and her mother. Um, she lost her mother as a young child. The sculpture is just very colorful and bold, and you may have noticed we have it lit, so there's like a dancing shadow around it. But when you get closer, you see all these kind of elements of tension. Like the mother's face is very restrained and they're just, they seem to be kind of not interacting, just next to each other. Yes. So there's a kind of uncomfortable feeling you get as you get closer to that sculpture. So it brings up a lot of, it's, it, it's not just as it looks, you know, cheerful and bright, but it's got all these different layers. The feeling in that piece is similar to her um, piece, The Party, is it? Okay. In the way that they're not necessarily interacting with each other. So I think it was a nice way to make it a little bit more personal with like an idea of a mother and a daughter so i thought that was really amazing oh great yeah and could you tell us a little bit of like the process of finding out like 
um, the, the pieces and discovering them and choosing them. Right. So the exhibition was actually curated by Esther Gabara, who's a faculty. She's a professor at Duke University. And she's going to be speaking here next Wednesday. Oh. So I wasn't the, you know, technically the curator of the exhibition. But I know it was very important for her to have a number of countries represented. So as you already mentioned, there are countries all across South America and the US, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. And so that representation of different countries, thinking of artists whose work engage with a pop sensibility and a pop style, but also who go a little bit deeper. So there's sometimes a little bit of a political engagement or this kind of reflection on identity, like we just spoke about with the Marisol. Yeah. So I think, you know, just kind of a broad representation, it's not comprehensive or encyclopedic but it really is a great introduction to what's going on in you know different part of America at the time in, in the late late 60s early 70s yeah in a way I feel like there was um, a little bit of more freedom in how artists approached some of their work I'm thinking on uh, Nicholas Garcia I think it's last name Irubo yes yeah mm-hmm. I'm sorry I'm bad at pronouncing but I'm thinking on his pieces with the green highlights, right? So there, it was. Uh, there's a whole story behind it where he colored some of the water, right? Um, right. He he disrupted a, like an artist boycott and he dumped non-toxic fluorescent into the city's canals. So I thought that was like amazing because like that's so brave, you know. And then to do a set of project that kind of focuses on that. So, and then I just wish we could do something like that now. Mm-hmm. And I know he was arrested, but he was released once they found out that the water was not polluted or anything like that. So, w- what's your um, opinion on that piece? Right. Um, that's a really interesting piece. It's not very well known. It was an intervention into the Venice Biennale and calling attention to, you know, environmental issues, which, as you said, you know, very relevant today. It, and it, that is actually paired in the exhibition with a colorful panther right next to it and that's also an Uriboro work Um, and one the Venice piece is very uh, conceptual it's a performance what we see in the exhibition is kind of documentation of what happened and the panther is just it's a pop colored painting but it's very traditional in like in the term in terms of art making, so paint on canvas. So this is something that the curator was also interesting in bringing out, and it's a bridge between pop art and conceptualism, and many of these artists were working kind of in both those veins. So ha- seeing them together is really illuminating because you see these various strains of their practice. And could you tell us a bit about the effect you think that this exhibition has um, in today's world and here at the, at the block? Right. Well, I hope it has a huge effect. Um, I mean, it's a really, it's great to be in the space and be surrounded by these artworks. Some are familiar, the Andy Warhols or the Lichtenstein, but what I think is more exciting is just the fact that we're introduced to so many artists who aren't as familiar with us. And then these artists are dealing with questions sometimes of identity, what does it mean to be American? Um, and that accent over the E that's included in the title sh- is one kind of trigger to shift our thinking for most many of us who are used to thinking of as America as the U.S. Um, it, it really broadens our perspective on this sort of micro level 
Um, and you think also just of other kinds of interventions and political actions like the piece you asked about, um, the Venice Biennale piece, and um, also just kind of uh, political and economic conditions that artists were addressing in the 1960s that are still relevant today. I think also considering the space that it's a, a campus, a university campus, it's amazing to um, have that accessible for younger people and just students in general, like you mentioned, to have that perspective, especially of um, that time, that particular time of 1965 to 1975, that's amazing. Right, yeah, and it's not just art historians who are um, on campus who are interested in the exhibition, but we have classes in Spanish and Portuguese and journalism and people who are interested in a broader historic, historical questions. So. After somebody might have, you know, gone through the exhibition, what, like, thought or story do you hope that somebody takes for after um, going through the entire exhibition? Yeah, um, again just this idea that America is more than just the continental U.S., that there are people across the continent who are engaging with dialogues around pop, um, hoping people are exposed and absorbing this different history. I mean the exhibition is kind of an intervention itself into the history of pop which we think of as kind of a New York or London phenomenon, but this kind of opens it up and we see what was happening in Buenos Aires and um, Cuba um, and uh, Rio de Janeiro. So this kind of opening up of the perspective, um, not thinking of as modernism as, some, as something that happens in the US or Europe, but it's happening globally. Do you have a favorite piece? Oh, my goodness, that's such a great question. Um, a favorite piece. I, one of them, I have many favorites. I think one of them is the Seldo Morales um, Coca-Cola bottles um, because it's, you could walk by and think it's not even an artwork and it's uh, really a perspective shifting work of art where he silk screened messages on Coke bottles that would go back to the factory after people drank the Coca-Cola and um, once the Coca-Cola bottles are filled with you know, the brown liquid, people see these messages like Yankee go home. So Morales is creating this artwork that normally wouldn't be in a museum, it's just circulating. It's called um, in, uh, Interventions into Ideological Circuits. And um, you know, just by creating this small gesture of adding words to the Coke bottles, he gets us thinking about um, U.S. cultural imperialism and economic imperialism <coughs> and how um, this was it during the time of the um, military dictatorship in Brazil. So this was a really effective way of spreading his message. And it's really sure. interesting. Oh, sorry, because like me and I were actually talking about it when we were upstairs and actually um, looking at it. Because like for us, we were both thinking like it's like another way of like um, graffiti or street art. Yes, yes. absolutely, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the, and it's it's awesome again like the intake that you know we don't really have the access to intervene with like the products that are being released like that. And then back in the day, there was that access that. You know, you can leave your mark and you, you don't know where this bottle is going to end up and you don't know who's going to see the message. So in a way, it's a form of graffiti or street art. Yeah, and then absolutely. you talking about what is it, the dictatorship that was happening in Brazil, I think it's like another way of like social street art and stuff like that and like fighting against that. 
dictatorship. I was going to say something else. Um, I think that's actually really nice now that like, you're actually mentioning it and us thinking about the same thing. Uh-huh. It's really beautiful, actually. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's one of the pieces that I love. <laughs> I could see why. And considering that a lot of different things happen here at the block, what other um, things do you help around with and what, are, what else are you in charge of? Oh, okay. So as academic curator, I often work with students who are working here at the Block Museum. I work with faculty, curating exhibitions. Um, I sometimes curate my own exhibitions, too. But... Um, yeah, I think that's yeah, my the emphasis that I'm, in my work is working with students and faculty. That's amazing. And what does the Blocks Museum permanent collection consist of? Okay, so we have about 6,000 works in our collection. It's mostly works on paper, um, mostly prints, but also drawings. We have a sculpture garden. You may have walked through it. But I like how our collection of prints also dovetails with this exhibition and you were talking about this a little bit at the beginning, how important screen printing is. I mean, in the case with Sildo Morales and the Coke bottles, that's one example. Oidasica's flag is another, and especially also Rupert Garcia, who um, did a lot of work with silk screening as a way to disseminate social political messages. That's amazing. Well, is there anything that we should know about the block that we haven't talked about? I know you'll be talking to some of my colleagues yes. um, also. But I'm just thrilled that you're here, and it's really fun to talk to you. Yes, thank you so much. This is great. And we're going to go on a small break, and we'll be right back in a couple of seconds. But stay tuned, because we have a lot of great content and a lot of more guests coming by. Guys, what's up? Don't forget that we're Yolokali's Pop-Up Youth Radio broadcasting here live at the Pop America Art Exhibition here at the Block Museum of Art at Northwestern University Evanston Campus. My name is Emmanuel. I'm Nine. And I'm Marie. And we have a little special guest here for you all. Hello, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Lois, and I am the tour coordinator here at the Block Museum, and I'm also a student at Northwestern. So I've been a docent for a couple of years, and now I help run the tour program. So when groups come to the museum, I help plan and experience in the galleries. And could you tell us what you're doing here today? Yeah, definitely. So I'm here just to help out with the opening of the exhibition. And I'm working with this radio program, which is awesome. And it's been really cool getting to talk to them and hear more about what they do. So yeah, I'm around to help. um, And I'm excited to see what's happening. Yeah. Considering that we have this amazing exhibit, let's start off with a very general question. What is art to you, or how would you define art? How would I define art? That's something that I think about a lot. I don't know. I'm really interested in um, thinking about art and politics together, and thinking about art and kind of like 
and just how it can be part of our everyday life. Like, obviously, like, you can come to a museum and look at art up on the walls, but then so many of the works in this exhibition were also posters that were hung up in the street or things that people encountered outside of a gallery space like this. So I think I have a pretty broad definition of art. I think a lot of things can be art, and I think that you can talk about a lot of different things as art. So yeah, but I think what's so amazing about art when you have that really broad definition of it and see it as something that's part of everyday life is that it has a lot of power and it has a lot of meaning and can really be a part of social movements and social change. And so far, what do you think about the Pop America exhibition? I really love it. I got to walk through it with the curator a couple of days ago and it was my first time really seeing everything. And I've seen work by some of the artists before, so it was really great to see it in the context of this exhibition. There's a lot of really beautiful work, a lot of really funny work, a lot of really fascinating stories, and a lot of really interesting like political and historical context behind the art. So I'm really looking forward to giving tours of it, and I'm really looking forward to just bringing my friends to the museum and spending more time in the galleries. Which piece would you say is your favorite piece? That's a great question. I think that my first walk through the galleries, so um, there's a piece downstairs here um, by Marta, I'm forgetting her last name, but the piece is called La Menasunda, and it means the chaos, translated roughly. And it's this really cool, immersive installation. And I got to see it in person when I was in New York this summer. But we have a gallery, we have a video of it in the gallery here. And you see shots of the interior. You see the like thousands of people lined up to get into it. And I really, I loved the exhibition itself. I loved getting to walk through it in the summer. But it's really cool to see it in the galleries here again and remember that, but also see it in the context of the exhibition. So that's one of my favorites. But I also really love some of the prints upstairs and the Marisol sculpture, too. So talking about the space specifically, what do you think about having museum accessible on campus, especially a free museum, considering that there's a lot of students and that it is something where you can come here and, you know, get a different perspective or just get inspired? Like, what is the importance and how do you see it? Yeah, I think it's so important and so cool that Northwestern has this museum on campus. I remember when I was deciding what school I wanted to go to and I visited Northwestern, I came to the block and just absolutely loved it and thought it was so great that there's that kind of resource here. So I think that as a docent and as the tour coordinator, I see a lot of professors bring student groups in here and I see outreach to student organizations. We've had partnerships and like had events um, in collaboration with student groups here at the block before. So I really appreciate that and I think that it's not just like an academic resource for students but also can become a center for community and a place that people can come gather and really like learn about art and get to know each other so i really love that about the block and then i also really appreciate that the block makes efforts to do outreach to the greater chicago community that it's not just a campus museum it's not just in evanston it's not just at northwestern there's a lot of connections to Chicago and that's something that people in the engagement department really put a really emphasize so yeah I just really love that the block is so connected. And could you tell us about the connections that uh, the museum has to Chicago and the importance of that? 
Yeah, so in my work in outreach, um, something that we do as we're getting ready for an exhibition to open or getting ready for a big program is looking into organizations who might be interested in the content of the exhibition or the themes of the exhibition, um, who might be invested in some of the like maybe political significances or be invested in the political significance of an exhibition. So I know in the past we've had um, people come to our openings at the William Blake opening a few years ago. We had the Old Town School of Folk Music come to a jam session outside. We've had printmaking collectives like IGC Today and Spudnik in the past come. And then today we have Yolo Kali here doing an amazing broadcast with us. So there's been a really all over all kinds of different groups I've seen partner with the block and it's really great to see that continuing. Thank you so much for being here with us and you know letting us know everything that we need to know about the block. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. And we're gonna go on another small break. Remember that you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 the Lumpen Radio. And this is Yolo Kali's Papa Youth Radio broadcasting live at the Pop America exhibition opening at the Block Museum of Art in Northwestern Evanston campus. Hello everyone and we're back and you are listening to Yolo Kali's Papa Youth Radio broadcasting live at the Pop America exhibition opening from the Block Museum of Art in Northwestern University Evanston campus. And you know we're just hanging out and so far we've had some great interviewees. Amazing. Um, yeah, super amazing. Inspiring. <laughs> Start off with, um, we had Corrine, which is the academic curator of the Block Museum and she gave us a, a good insight of you know what the museum consists of as uh, as far as their permanent collection which was amazing to talk about also how to handle or go about the process of having a borrowed exhibition in in the museum that which is the black museum and as well as we discussed some 
pieces that we saw here at Pop America and the importance of it, which was amazing because, you know, it's it's good to get a perspective from someone who uncovered the art and, un, you know, was like there from the start. Of and basically saw it first before anybody else yeah, did, yes. It's amazing. And then we also had another interviewee. And a, a, a guest. And she uh, talks about why she was here pretty much and how she got like ended up working with the exhibition and we just asked her um, a bit like of questions on her opinion on the exhibition some of her favorite pieces and we got to see some opinions from somebody that necessarily didn't put it together but um, was working with it and we got to hear some like feedback from an actual like art yeah. lover. And also the impact of having a local art exhibition in the community of the campus which I think it's super amazing and accessible for students to like come in here and maybe like oh I have like a break from a class let's check out the museum or get inspired or I'm feeling like you know it's just a, a, a really nice place. And also hearing <laughs> about what is it that the Black Museum also does outreach programs with different parts of mm-hmm. Chicago is also really nice to hear like so National Museum of Mexican Art you know Pop of View Radio being here at the Black was because of the museum it's just like hey we want you guys here to oh my <laughs> I'm so sorry I almost fell <laughs> excited I am obviously so yeah it was really nice hearing that too. And not to forget we also had a member from Instituto Gráfico de Chicago yes. just talked with us just a couple minutes ago and that, that was a very good insight too and also kind of having the perspective of how to go about this specific medium since we also saw some screen prints at the exhibition and it was amazing. We talked about the process of it as well. But yeah, thank you so much for everyone that's tuning in and we are at the Block Museum. And we're going to go on a small break and stay tuned because we have a whole nother hour left to go. A whole nother hour with juicy content, so uh, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. I'm Nine. I'm Marie. And I'm Emmanuel. And we are Papa Youth Radio. Thank you. everyone again this is nine i'm emmanuel and i'm marie and this is wlpn lp chicago 105.5 fm lumpen radio and you are listening to yolocalis papa youth radio broadcasting live at the pop america exhibition opening from the block museum of art in northwestern university evanston campus 
And again, we have a very special guest with us here today. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Lisa Corin, and I'm the director of the Block Museum at Northwestern University. And I just want to start by saying, free and open to all. Just because we're on a big university campus doesn't mean everybody can't be here. So uh, we are the welcome mat for Northwestern. So going off of that idea, um, what, would, what would you say is the importance of, of having something like this that's not at normal or at every university? You mean having an art museum? Yes, yes. Well, I, you, you are correct. It's an immense privilege. And um, as part of that privilege, I think it's really important that we be free and open to everyone. It's a way that the university gives back by being a free resource for everyone. You know, going to art museums, people have so little time these days, they have limited resources to spend. They're making big choices. I think it's a wonderful thing that we can present this exhibition and say, anyone can come. You don't even have to pay for parking on the weekends and after four o'clock. And in addition, we have an amazing free cinema program that's two nights a week. So if you're interested in global cinema, this is also a great place to come. And this is a way a very privileged private university can do something for the greater community so that everybody can take advantage of the wealth of resources that are here. Um, and could you tell us um, a bit of the exhibitions and the types of exhibitions that have come here through the block? So um, this year is devoted to what we call global modernisms. You know, when we learn the history of abstract art, you know, famous artists like Jackson Pollock, the, 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 um, typically that history focuses on the US and Europe. And one of the things that our curators wanted to do is decenter that history and say, wow, there were other centers and other histories. And so this exhibition deals with the phenomenon of pop, which a lot of people associate with Andy Warhol, and show how it went around the world, but particularly in Latin America, because um, the 60s, the 70s were a, a tremendously tumultuous time politically. And artists um, were, uh, artists typically mine whatever is going on in the world around them to create their art. They're responding to it. They're reacting against it. They're taking positions politically on the things they like and that they don't like. And this exhibition is, provides a really incredible insight into how artists were processing these vast cultural and political changes taking place on this continent during this particular period. But it also includes, you know, Cuba which, you know, it's really important for people to know that this world extended far beyond the borders of just the continent of Latin America. And so um, it also deals with artists in the United States and how they were, and how they were. So it's about the Americas. I think it's, that's the way to put it. And it's followed by an exhibition of modernism in Turkey, Iran, and um, India. And after that, modernism in the Arab world. So our program is really global. Um, we're interested in global perspectives, how thinking about the world from the point of view of someone who comes from a different place and different culture can change the way you see yourself and your relationship to that world. For sure. That, and that's amazing, again, considering the space that it's in, um, where a lot of students have access to it. And not just students, but how you mentioned it's free and people have that exposure to come here and have those perspectives as well. One of, my, one of the museums in the world that I admire most is the, the National Museum of Mexican Art in Pilsen. I started looking at their work um, in the late 80s as a young curator because it's one of the few museums that has international importance 
and huge stature in this country, and at the same time still manages to feel like a community-based organization. It has a kind of intimacy to it. I mean, going over there on Sundays after church and seeing all the families there is, is very, very rewarding for someone like me in the museum profession. And so um, when I think about the block and what I'd like it to be, the feeling I'd like it to have, that is one of the role models um, for this museum. So we're thrilled that we're going to be working with them on programming for this exhibition. How do you want other people to feel when they see this exhibition of Pop America? I want them to be thoughtful. I want them to come in and see the work and ask questions about what they're seeing. I want them to be open to new histories. If this is not a history they're familiar with, I mean, I, as I was saying before, this is not my area of expertise. Um, and so I'm here to learn just along with everybody else. This is a, a, a slice of history that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And I don't think you can be a really responsible global citizen without taking an interest in other people's histories. So you, you know, particularly uh, the U.S. relationship to that part of the world, right now more than ever before. It's really critical that we have an understanding of how we got here and also where we're going to go from here. I believe that's actually a really important and beautiful uh, mindset to think about. Anybody? And um, when seeing pop-up exhibitions similar to this one come and go, how does that affect your creativity or thought on history and the history of art? Well, that's a really good question. Um, we're always trying to push the boundaries. And so sometimes the art you see here may be things you could see other places, but we want to put a different frame around it so that you see it fre with fresh eyes. So upstairs, you're going to see a print by Andy Warhol alongside work by artists from you know, Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela. Well, that creates a really interesting tension because we're used to thinking of him as the king of pop. Yes. And I want people to come there and really you know, think, well, maybe Warhol wasn't the only one who was thinking and working in that way. And, and also to ask, why were some of these artists left out of the canon of art history? How did he get to claim the title king of pop art? You know, why, why not um, Marisol, for example, the fabulous um, woman sculptor whose work you'll see in the exhibition. So um, we're always thinking when we're doing exhibitions about ways that it encourages people to question how things got the way they are. You know, it's, it's important to me, particularly for young people, that they not just go blithely along accepting the stories that they've been told about history that they understand that you can change the story by changing the storyteller, or you put a new frame around it, or you have, a different, you have a different person telling the story. The history may look very, very different. And so um, that's part of what the block is here to do. And um, not just primarily uh, Pop America, but like the block and all the different exhibitions that um, the building provides, what effect do you think that has on not just the university here, but the different communities here in Chicago? Well, I'd like, I want to believe that we can be a gathering place between the campus and the community. But of course, that's a process. I'm not going to lay claim to, to the block right now being that ideal space, but I think it's something that we should be aspiring to. Um, when we have programs um, with really lively discussion between students and faculty and members of the community at large, it kind of brings us all together to hear each other's perspectives and doesn't relegate them only to the ivory tower of the academic world. Um, I'm really excited about um, you know, how academic ideas get into the mainstream and can really affect the world outside of the classroom. 
And so we're always interested in uh, transforming um, the scholars who are here into public intellectuals who are willing to engage in real discussion with a broader public so that the things that they learn about the world, the things that they've studied, can have an impact on the broader culture. So considering that you mentioned that the National Museum of Mexican Art is a good um, inspiration, uh, what else, um, as a director, what else inspires you to direct things at the block the way that they're being directed now? So uh, I think your question is what are the museums and what are the models are out there? Um, so I want to just tell you a little bit about my own background because in fact, I, I'm a first generation college graduate. I didn't have a fancy internship at a big museum. I didn't have anybody open the, those doors for me, right? My first job was working with a former special education teacher who, in Baltimore, actually, who was concerned that um, the big museums in that city, um, that the um, majority of Baltimoreans, of whom most are African-American, were not going through the doors of those museums. So how could we break down the boundaries between museums and the larger citizenry? And so he had an idea to create a nomadic museum, a museum with no walls, in which we would work with artists of incredibly high caliber and communities together. And the artists would get to know the histories of those different neighborhoods. So it wasn't Pilsen, but take Pilsen, for example. An artist might go into Pilsen and learn more about the successive generations of immigrants who had shaped the unique texture of that place. And then the artists would create works of art in response to what they had learned from the community about their lives and about their histories. And so we would take over temporary sites, I mean, abandoned banks, abandoned, oh, one time we were in an abandoned rectory from a church that had closed down, and present these exhibitions there. So we weren't worried about how many people saw the show, whether a million people came. What we cared about was did the neighborhood that had worked with the artist engage and feel that it had become their museum in a way for a period of time. And that experience um, taught me so much about um, the value of collaboration, um, of um, respect, also how so many communities see museums as these sort of like fortress-like monoliths that, you know, with all the protocols, you know, you, you walk into a museum, you walk up these steps like it's a temple. Right? Then you have to go in, you have to pull out your cash, you have to leave your bags, you have to be quiet, you can't touch anything. Rules, rules, rules. And for people having their first experiences in museums, this is really disconcerting and it's not very welcoming. So what are other ways to think about museums, their behaviors, and breaking down those boundaries so that people feel a sense of ownership in the cultural histories that live inside museums to, in a way, reclaim that territory for their own. And that, so that experience working with my mentor, George Sissel, who was the founder of the Contemporary Museum, um, was really the, dis, the most shaping impact um, that, that was on my life. Um, and while I, while I was working with him, 
We also commissioned an artist named Fred Wilson. He's an African-American artist. He's since won the MacArthur, one of these genius awards. And we brought him into a Southern white historical society that had not a single um, board member of color as a trustee. And it was a museum that told us that it had no representation of African-American history. Remember, Maryland is where Harriet Tubman was from. Frederick Douglass was there, Benjamin Banneker, the great astronomer who was a friend of Thomas Jefferson's. And Fred went in and he represented their collection from his perspective. And remember what I said before about change the storyteller, you change the story? Well, there was an example of how conferring authority on someone else, giving them agency to shape the history, completely transformed our, the telling of a state's history. And I'm interested in those kinds of interventions in the kind of authoritative narratives of history and also in the authoritative positions of institutions like museums. That was amazing. I know. That was, that was beautiful. Well, this is what the Museum of, of Mexican Art does so, the National Museum of Mexican Art does so brilliantly. This is what they're about. You can see how I would be influenced by and really respond to the um, uh, how that found their founder had really shaped that institution. And um, what do you feel when you see different exhibitions and like manifestation, different manifestations of art and styles of art come through um, versus museums that are just paintings and sculptures? Like we see a bunch of different intricate pieces of art and things as simple as screen prints here that you wouldn't see at like a top-notch museum. What do you? What importance do you think that has? So you know. Creative expression comes in many forms. It can be a ceramic pot. It can be your blouse. It can be the color of these microphone sponges that we're standing in front of. Um, I guess I, I come, my belief is that um, it's important for us to embrace all forms of creativity. Um, we're a an art museum, so interest is in the visual. Um, and one of the things that our Associate Director of Curatorial Affairs, Kathleen Burzog, taught me was that, um, and this is hard to wrap your head around it at first, but it's worth thinking about. Art is the materiality of human thought. Sure, sometimes it's beautiful. It's always wonderful to look at a painting of a beautiful landscape, but when you get to think about it as truly a reflection, not only of um, our aesthetic response to the world, but also that it has in it ideas, right? Because artists are trying to communicate an idea about life and about the world that they're in, and sometimes even about other art that came before their, before their own. But here at the block, that can take a lot of forms. Sometimes it's performance-based. And we really believe what's important is that we expose the public and the people who come through our door to as many forms of human creativity as possible. Yeah, I think that's amazing to mention how like um, art is uh, a visual way to see someone's thoughts because I'm thinking back on like my art history class and we're learning about um, ancient Egypt and you know many like uh, history like the history of art and it lets us know what the civilizations at that time looked like and their communities and how they they just created their empires and everything and without art um, left behind we wouldn't really have access to knowing about those civilizations and their history so I think you know as, um, how you mentioned art can look in many different ways and 
it's it's a good also amazing way to document what's happening like you know with pop america being a good example of what happened in that era of 1965 to 1975 that, that's amazing well also art serves many functions sometimes it sac- serves a sacred function right in ancient egypt it often did mm-hmm. sometimes it's associated associated with the rituals of death mm-hmm. and some cultures don't even have words for art because art is so integrated into everyday life that they don't distinguish it as a special category of object. You know, this idea of art with a capital A is very Western. It's very specific to certain cultures and certain a kind of museological way of thinking. But around the world, there are all forms, so many forms of creativity that are not considered precious. There's, everyday life is precious, and art is just part of it. Human expression is part of it. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, well, just a little final question to wrap up, since we're Yorokali and we're crazy. Um, <laughs> if you were to describe the block as a food, what food would you choose? Well, I'm, I'm Sicilian, so you know it's going to be like pasta, right? <laughs> and the thing about pasta is it comes in many shapes, and it can be different depending on what sauce you put on it. So I would say that's a really good food for describing the block. Yeah. Maybe it's also a taco. It's depending on how you fill it, it changes what the taco is. But I would say any food that, with, that by um, making a little adjustment can transform it into some other experience, that, that's the block. That's amazing. That's a beautiful way to describe the block as a food. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us and talking to us about so many great things of the block and getting to know you as well. That's amazing. Oh, it's my input. pleasure. We, we, you can come back anytime. We'd love to have you. You can, you know, um, and it doesn't always have to be about um, Latin American art. I mean, we have this, these shows coming up this year are all really interesting. And uh, your youth of the world you're global in your perspective, so please come back for those for those shows as well. Awesome. Thank you Thank so you. much for inviting us. Our Thank pleasure. you so much. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go into a little quick song break, and we'll be right back. Don't forget that you're listening to Yolokali's Pop-Up Youth Radio. everyone this is pop-up youth radio broadcasting live from the block museum at northwestern university in evanston chicago and a little bit ago we were talking with the director of the block museum and we had a beautiful conversation with her but now we're with other beautiful people to talk to nine yes so we have Theo calavera here with us um hello everyone can you introduce yourselves please yes my name is jaime garza hi my name is camilo rincon and my name is luis fernando amaya Awesome, thank you for being here with us. Can you um, start off by telling us what do you play? Uh, yeah, I play jarana and cajon. I play requinto and jarana. I, I play leona, which is uh, an acoustic bass. And we all sing. Oh, okay, So how did the trio formulate? That's a great question. Actually, for these kinds of things, when whenever, I don't know, one of us would get invited to play some son jarocho, and we needed other people that we could trust to, to play without necessarily like many rehearsals. Uh, we would call each other, mostly me, I, I would call them. <laughs> and um, 
Yeah, it's because this type of music, Son Jarocho, what we play, um, you can really play with almost anyone that knows the same tradition, even if you haven't met them. But there are certain codes that sometimes you feel, uh, like other people play that you feel more comfortable with. So I have felt very comfortable with these two. Uh, so that's why we usually play together in gigs like this one or playing at a, you know, like a cultural center where we can play Son Jarocho pretty traditionally, but pretty, I don't know, I don't, maybe solidly, <laughs> that's the way to say it. Can you tell us, for our listeners who don't know about Jarocho music, can you describe it and what it is and where it comes from? This music called Son Jarocho is from Veracruz, Mexico. For the song uh, most people know is La Bamba, the Richie Valens version. That song is a rock and roll version of the traditional music that's from Veracruz, which is, um, you know, when the Spanish came and they brought slaves from Africa, those, the cultures of uh, African American Africans and Spanish and indigenous mixed create this style called Son Jarocho, which is a lot of acoustic guitars, a lot of call and response. It's a community-based music, and it's uh, it's all based around calling and uh, singing back and forth, and uh, it revolves around the dancers and the traditional party called the fandango, which is the gathering where everybody comes together and celebrates this music and convenes. And what are the typical instruments for this kind of music? Uh, most of the instruments uh, are made with the wood and the uh, materials that are available in the region. So uh, cedar is one of the main woods that's, that's uh, used to create the, uh, to make the guitars, the jaranas, which they're called, or the smaller version, uh, the requinto, which is a, a lead guitar, and la leona, which is the, the acoustic bass. Um, so yeah, so some, some people also incorporate uh, small percussion. Sometimes it's uh, la quijada de burro, which is a donkey jaw. And sometimes it's the uh, ca cajon, which is the Peruvian box. Um, and one of the main instruments of Son Jarocho is the zapateado, which is the tapping of your feet, uh, dancing, but you're, it's also a percussion instrument. Uh, so all of these uh, instruments, you know, to make the music, and then the, uh, the last touch is the, is the lyrics, um, which speak about love, life, death and everything in between um, in, a, in a very poetic way but also in a very um, timeless manner where, where lyrics can, can, you cannot tell when they were written um, because they're just so timeless, just things like nature or love that are universal. Uh, so those things kind of all incorporate to create this beautiful music. Also most of those instruments uh, well, especially the, one, the string ones come from European instruments, especially from Spain and Italy, uh, that came to that region in the 1600s or 1700s, and they evolved differently in those, in those places. Um, and also lots of the music that, like the musical traits of Son Jarocho, you can identify lots of Baroque counterpoint, for example, like how the notes, um, like the melodies relate to each other and you have simultaneous melodies and the harmonies and the rhythm is very African, um, African influence and also indigenous from that region which are the Nahuas. So it's really cool that through the instruments, through the lyrics, through the um, uh, everything about the music, you can see all the different influences and the history of this genre.
And could you tell us the importance of keeping this music style and art style alive even today? Yeah, this style, it's interesting because in the United States and actually in many countries and in Europe and South America as well, um, it's, there's been a strong, there's been several movements of restoring this music. It's never gone away. It's always existed in, um, in the small communities, but out of the cities, it's had periods of decadence where it's, it's, um, it's kind of, you know, they've come at loss of losing it and the, the people who carry it on don't pass it along. So lots of people, a lot of important groups have gone to, um, have done initiatives, community building initiatives, because this music is really, it's based around community, it's communal based, it's, you know, sometimes the main purpose besides the music, uh, beyond the music is really just convening people and bringing people together. So there's been, there's groups actually all around, including in Chicago, there's lots of groups such as Haro Chicanos, there's groups, este, you know, there's, there's Fandanguero, there's este, Sones de Mexico, lots of other groups that have uh, focused on this music and given it an importance and a specific focus. And it's beyond other styles of Mexican music. I think Son Jarocho specifically is one of the most, today it's one of the most, uh, people have specialized in it the most and specialized in using it as a tool for community building. It's also very interesting to think that this type of music was actually dying, well, what, dying out, as Camilo said, uh, in the region where it is from. And one of the things that actually rescued Son Jarocho from disappearing was people who took it to the cities. And the urbanization of Son Jarocho transformed it a lot, of course. Many things were lost, but some things were also added. And in a way, gave momentum to this genre for it not to disappear, even in the region where it is from, which is something interesting to, to think about. And could you tell us um, how each and every one of you found out about this art style and like, developed a passion for it? Yeah, from high school. I, I, I was studying music and there was a mariachi program led by Victor Pichardo, director of Sones de Mexico. And in that mariachi program, we not only learned mariachi music, but we learned uh, Mexican music from a lot of different regions and from a lot of different times. So we learned a lot of uh, wapango, marimba, corridos, all of that type of music. And we learned also son jarocho. And I guess from all the music, from Me that Mexico has produced in the past 100, 200 years, to me, Son Jarocho stood out for a lot of different reasons, where I, I decided from, a, from early on, from high school, I decided to, to learn more about the music, to incorporate to the culture, and to, to let it uh, be known to, to more people around, to either more students or even more professors. Um, and so I started learning and playing the music. I traveled to Veracruz and learned from friends, musicians that live over there. And that's kind of how I, I started um, Son Jarocho. I, um, I first encountered Son Jarocho at a, at a gathering, a party at a home. And I, it was, it's kind of in a similar vein as Jaime. I, I met um, one of the people who was in this group called Sones de Mexico, which has had a specific, really important role in Chicago and Mexican music. And what attracted me was seeing people that were like me from my culture, Latinos, playing music, people who were young and people who were also older and experienced and had lots of musical, um, you know, expression. So, and then I also had the opportunity to travel to Mexico lots of times and I think for anybody who's interested in this music or other traditional styles, experiencing, you know, 50 people or 40 people playing all together, which you experience often in Veracruz when you go to Fandango, when you go to a gathering, it leaves a mark on you of 
on how powerful a music that's 300 or 400 years old is. So that's, that's kind of my brief history of music. Uh, to me, so I'm from a region uh, called El Bajío in Mexico, from the state of Aguascalientes, that is really far away from Veracruz and from its culture in a way. So I had, when I moved to Mexico City, uh, I encountered that kind of by chance in a way. I met Gustavo Calzada, which is probably the best teacher I could have found there, or one of them, definitely. And he knew how to teach me this genre from a, a very historical standpoint, from a very culturally informed standpoint. And I got to know a lot of history from different regions, from the whole continent in a way, through this music. You, through the lyrics, you get to see, okay, this was probably written during the revolution, the Mexican revolution, or maybe before the independence, or this is a, a, like an African song, uh, or like, more like a sl as African slave songs from Mexico that talk about, for example, the, the only black saint and how they relate to that black saint and how um, maybe you can see lots of the social dynamics th through that song. Uh, there's music that was preserved because it was um, prohibited by the Inquisition. So it's very interesting that you learn a lot about your culture, history, through this music. So that's why I got really hooked up. So considering the genre, do you all develop your own lyrics or do you um, implement only like lyrics that have been written before? The lyrics, the lyrics, the way the, the, in this tradition that they work is there's lyrics that are passed on there's some lyrics that are 300 years old or older than that. And the way you learn lyrics traditionally is by hearing people sing them in the fandango. And you hear someone sing it, it's call and response. So each time a person sings it, they sing half of it, and then they respond to the first half. And the person who started sings the second half, and it's a back and forth. So you get the chance to hear it. Even if you're not singing, you're able to pick those up. And when you learn 300, 400 verses, which you often do if you stick with the tradition for years, you can, people find ways of expressing themselves through poetry that already exists, that's kind of like a common knowledge, a common, um, yeah, it's like a library of, of music and expression. And people also improvise, and you know, for specific events, I know I, I improvise, sometimes I write lyrics, and I think other people, um, my, my friends, my musical friends also, you know, you learn the forms and you're able to improvise within those forms as well. as a trio felt like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the music is um, just so uh, dear to us in different ways. We, I mean, we're all experienced musicians and we play with so many musicians throughout our professional musician life that you sometimes click with people and you remember, you know, you remember them and you kind of try to keep in touch and you know so you could you know play um you know sometimes we we we're invited to different things and it's not just uh who you're playing with but also who you're playing for and what kind of uh themes are are behind the uh, organization or the um or the event so i think all of that kind of influences in how you feel and then you just try to continue that Every time you get invited, you're like, oh, well, I want to feel that again with my friends, uh, Luis and Camilo, and it's, a, and it's always a good time and good experience. I actually have a very funny story about this. So I, when I came to Chicago to do my PhD at Northwestern, I basically knew 
almost none Latinos, and I felt really uh, nostalgic about that. I really wanted to play some Jarocho. So I got in touch with, uh, with Jaime's band, and Camilo's too, actually, Ida um, y Vuelta. I sent them an email and was like, hey, wh where can I go to see you, and where are the Fandangos? Can I please join? <laughs> um, and then Jaime texted me, or emailed me back, I guess, and told me, so where do you want to meet? We can just have a fandango. And I said, why don't you come to my place? Which was super far away from where they, they all lived. And suddenly one day they're like, hey, want to play today at seven? Sure, why not? Can I invite some friends over? Yes, why not? And then I opened the door and one person comes in, two people and 15 people uh, <laughs> later with boxes of beer, instruments, uh, I don't know, mezcal, whatever. We started playing and it was beautiful. It was super nice, super nice people. Uh, and we clicked never since we have been playing uh, every once in a while. You just brought the whole community to your yeah. house. Without wanting. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, Ida Vuelta, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, uh, we formed... Um, with another friend, Laura Cambron. We formed Ida Vuelta about six years ago. And uh, it's a quartet, and we played all over uh, Chicago, and, uh, and we've toured a little bit in the US. Um, and we focus on traditional Son Jarocho music. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a quartet, Ida Vuelta. I have a question for you. So you said you studied here at Northwestern, and considering that you mentioned that when you first studied here, you didn't have someone to really relate to, and how do you feel that you're here at the Block Museum playing with your trio um, at Northwestern? Uh, I mean, just to clarify, I did have a couple of them, but very few. <laughs> uh, Latin American friends, but definitely I did. Uh, but now it's, it's really nice. Many things have changed uh, in many ways politically but also socially and in my personal life so it's very interesting to be able to be here and share some of the music that I know that has probably nothing to do with the music that is played and taught in that building and it's really nice to be able to share this with people that I've met here but that, who are very connected uh, to me culturally speaking um, it's really nice also very interesting and especially if I see it if I took a look to all everything that has happened in this country, in my country, and in my life during those times. I don't know, it's fun to think about it. <laughs> Do you still keep up with your mentor from Benito Juarez? Yes, Victor Pichardo is still around. He's, he's a musical director. He's produced uh, music here in Chicago and in Mexico City. Um, he had a big, you know, he's, he's into, he's an anthropologist and he's also a musician. So a lot of the music that he plays has a lot of background, a lot of cultural relevance to what happened before and what's happening now. And yes, I keep in touch with him. I probably saw him a few, few months ago. Yeah. Cool. Do you keep up with your mentors or your influences from um, when you barely started? Of course, yeah. The people who, who I started learning with, which is Raul Fernandez, uh, Maya Fernandez, their family, and then also Stephanie Rodriguez and Jackie Rodriguez. Um, it's, we're like, it's funny, whenever we go somewhere, everybody's like, oh, you, you guys are brother and sister, you guys are a big family because they're really my chosen family. They're like people that I'm, you know, pretty much every day in contact with and, um, yeah, and all the important parts of our life, we, you know, the big major movement, movements and moments, as well as organizing, we stay connected. 
That's awesome. Well, thank you. I just want to say that Harocho music and what you guys mentioned to me um, kind of reminds me of Pop America because it's still relevant today how you mentioned the, some of the lyrics and the content that you guys produce, just like what's going on right now today at the block with Pop America. It's still relevant today. Well, I just want to thank you all for being here with us and talking to us. It was a nice session. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're going to go on a small break. everyone and don't forget you're listening to Yolo Cali's Papa Youth Radio broadcasting live at the Pop America 1965 to 1975 exhibition opening from the Block Museum of Art in Northwestern University Evanston campus. Y'all we up in a building. Yes, this was such a Shutting good session. It down. <laughs> we just finished talking with the uh, Trio Calavera. We, um, their interview was amazing. They had uh, some insights because I honestly was not familiar with Jarocho music. I don't yes. know about you all. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> not, it was not an interesting experience, though, to, like, hear them talk about. And, like, wow, like, to understand that it was, like, a dying, um, like, music and stuff like that. A lot of people had to, like, take it with them out, out of, like, ah, state, but, like, out of the country and, like, revive it. Revive. It was, it was yeah. really beautiful, honestly, hearing that. I'm like, wow, people actually did that? Right. Crazy. And, like, I kind of mentioned this in the interview. Like, it reminds me of, like, the exhibition of Today, Pop America, yes. how a lot of it, you know, I, I wouldn't say the art alive. yeah I wouldn't say it's dying out but a lot of the um, themes and topics about politics and economics are still very relevant today in 2019 considering that the exhibition focuses on you know 1965 all the way to 1975 uh, it's marinating it into our communities right Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> and talking about marinating it also reminds me of um, how we had an amazing conversation with the director of the Black Museum Lisa which was awesome and she 
beautifully described. Yes, everything that she does here, for the most part, and her insight. And I think it's very awesome to get the insight of the director, considering that it also tells us about what kind of space we walk into when we visit the block. Right. Yes, it, was it was a very philosophical conversation, and I just got 100% smarter by just listening to her speak. Yeah, I was like, wow, we're, we're like, learning. And learning. I forgot we were, like, live for a second. But <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. Just listening to her talk, just like, wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so happy with all the different interviews we got today. I'm so happy all of you were able to listen and learn all about screen printing, Spanish music, and all Pop the, like, America. Mexican stuff. Also about the relationships with the university and their students. Yes. You know, it seems like a very nice school to attend considering that there's opportunities here at a local museum, which is, if that's in your interest, that's, like, this is a nice space to kind of explore all of that. And also, and it's also nice to hear that the director mentioned that the National Museum of Mexican Art is a really good inspiration for the way that things are directed here. Because as you know, and how it affects the community. Yes, the community is very important and engaging it as well. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. Yes, if you're listening, you can still come by to check out the exhibit. It's um two floors and it's ongoing and it's amazing. You get a lot of different insights, a lot of different artists from all over the world, like Cuba, Argentina, Mexico, of course, the United States. Britain and more, way more, and they're all divided differently, and there is a lot of um, backstories behind them. There's great descriptions to learn about them. Come get a new perspective, especially about what was going on in the world at that time. Yeah. Awesome. Well, <laughs> we're going to close up now. Thank you so much for being with us. This Thank was you so much. Everyone. And thanks for attending if you were here. Yeah, so this is, and don't forget that you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. And this was Yolo Cali's Papa Youth Radio broadcasting live at the Pop America exhibition opening from the Black Museum of Art in Northwestern University, Evanston Campus. I am Nine. I'm Emmanuel. And I'm Marie. And this was Papa Youth Radio at the Block. Thank you. Pop Up Youth Radio is a project of Yolo Cali Arts Reach and is a youth-led, community-centered, pop-up internet radio program. Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while. I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, amazing, astonishing, highly amazing production. If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again. In the meantime, we'll be working on the next one here in Lumpin' Radio. So stay tuned to our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, astonishing, highly amazing broadcast. I hope that you are informed about the awesome parts of life and that you will have a splendid day. Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at Yolokali. On social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at Yolokali, or visit at YolokaliArtsReach.org for more. We are the